to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you need a Bible, make sure you raise your hand. We'll, we'll, we'll deliver one to you. Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. We are four weeks into a seven-week sermon series entitled Dear Church, where we're considering the seven letters to the seven churches uh, that Jesus has written, de- uh, dictated to the Apostle John, uh, to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We've already considered three of those letters, and uh, this morning we find ourselves at the city of Thyatira, where Jesus writes the letter, Dear Church, hold fast. Dear Church, hold fast. Stand with me if you would. We'll read our text together this morning. Revelation chapter 2, we begin in verse 18, where Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols." I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you or to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with an, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that it is a light unto our path, and it is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, that it is, has the, the saving power to direct us to the cross of Jesus Christ, where we can repent and turn away from our sin and receive the cleansing power of the blood of Christ over our lives. We pray this morning, Lord, as those who have gathered in the name of Jesus, that, Lord, if there are things in our life that we are tolerating, that you speak to us today, that you help us to turn away from our sin. It's a sober word that you have for the church in Thyatira, it's a sober word that you have for us this morning. So we ask, Lord, that you would just have your way, that your spirit would lead, you would speak to our hearts. And for those that are faithful, Lord, that you help them to continue to hold fast against a culture that is going head over heels in debauchery on a daily basis. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that your spirit would come teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The, the church in Thyatira actually is the smallest of all the churches that Jesus speaks to. It happens to be in the smallest of the cities that Jesus writes to, but it would seem that it has the biggest problem. You see, this church has become tolerant to sin. Now, as I was studying this week, I began to look at there seems to be a de- delinear line of degradation happening when you start at Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, with the church of Ephesus, and you end Revelation chapter 3, looking at the church of Laodicea, there is a steep uh, line of degradation going on. It starts with the church becoming loveless, where the heart becomes to grow cold. The Lord says this church was faithful to stand against the bad doctrine, teaching, these kinds of things. It was intolerant towards sin, yet they were unloving. 
We find the church of Sardis that although they were being persecuted heavily, they too were being faithful to the Lord in the midst of, uh, you know, this, this false teaching culture and this idolatry and all that was going on there. Which leads us to the church of Pergamum, which we considered last week. The church of Pergamum had become compromised. They had married themselves to the world. And at, it's going downhill, as you can see. As we come to the church of Thyatira today, they have take, it's taken a severe turn for the worse. This church is not only compromised, they are completely corrupt. They have allowed sin into the camp, which we'll look at next week. We'll find out will eventually lead to a dead church, which eventually will lead to a church that has the form of godliness but denies its power. Just a religious uh, you know, situation with no connection to God whatsoever. You see the delineation going on from going from lovelessness all the way to this religious system that has no connection to God. I, I guarantee if you consider any prodigal child, any prodigal son or daughter, you know, you'll see that same linear line going on in their life where they just begin to allow a little bit of compromise in their life. Then it becomes corruption. Then it turns to deadness in their heart. And then, you know, if they do go to church, it's just a form of godliness denying his power. There's a word for us as a local church today. Yes, Jesus wrote to a literal church 2,000 years ago about being corrupt, about tolerating sin in the church, but and he also, it points to a historical point in, in, in the church history, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it is speaking directly to us this morning. Jesus is writing to his church, this church, today, and he's saying, dear church, hold fast. Hold fast. We live in a culture that is, is, is continually pleading with the church to become tolerant to sin. To, to, to allow the, the re, redefinition of marriage and to allow, you know, uh, to, 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 they just want the world, the world just wants the church to say, it's okay, do what you want. And in fact, we'll join you. Well, that's exactly what happened in Thyatira. That's exactly what was going on. By way of background, Thyatira was located some 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was probably founded by Alexander the Great, some 300 years before Jesus came. It was famous in its day for commerce regarding the wool industry. Also, it produced a special dye. This dye was very expensive. It was purple, and they obtained it from a certain shellfish, which divers would go, and they would obtain them. They would bring them up. They would slit the throat of this little shellfish, and they would squeeze out a little drop of this dye that they would then use, mix with the, the waters of Thyatira to, to create these certain colors that couldn't be created anywhere else in the world. They had a corner on the market in some fashion, folks. I mean, this was the, you know, this is the prog of, uh, you know, the, 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 the culture in uh, John's day. This, this place was a fashion, fashion culture. We learned that there was a lady there that came from Thyatira that was a wealthy woman that sold purple garments, and we'll, we'll talk about her in a second. She was introduced to the Apostle Paul. Thyatira was also known for its trade guilds. It was a place that was heavily unionized. Like This place was, the, the most heavily unionized place in America is a place called Springfield, Missouri, by the way. Springfield, Illinois, actually. And it has the most unions per capita. Thyatira was the most unionized place in all of Asia Minor. It had tons of unions. In fact, if you weren't part of a union, you couldn't work. What was the issue of that, these unions was that they coupled the union with a deity, some Greek god. And it was required of the members of these guilds to come and worship. And that would often, uh, you know, accompany pagan feasts with sexual immorality and all kinds of things like that. It was, Thyatira literally means, listen to this, you can write it down even, unceasing sacrifice. Literally means unceasing sacrifice. These guilds were constantly sacrificing to these false idols. And again, the, the, the church was required, if they desired to uh, make a living, they would be required to do the same. There was a temple that was dedicated. They were famous for this temple, dedicated uh, to fortune-telling. It was presided over by a female oracle named Sambeth. Many, many people travel from all over the world to come to Thyatira to get their fortunes told by this woman. 
Little is known about the establishment of the church in Thyatira. We, we do know that, again, Lydia from Thyatira met the Apostle Paul in Philippi and while on a business trip there. And, and she opened her home there to Paul, and they were able to establish the church there. Many believe that perhaps Lydia was the responsible one to start the church in Thyatira. Very possible that even the, the disciples from Ephesus had made their way up to Thyatira and uh, established a church there. There's one thing for sure that we know that it, perhaps it was founded by a woman. There was a woman in this congregation that was confounding this city and this church. There's a serious problem with this church in Thyatira, and the Lord has some words for them. He begins by saying, dear church, hold fast, and he gives us a little bit of a description, introduction, and description as typical for all of the letters that he writes. Look at with, with me at verse 18 there where Jesus says unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. Again, the Jesus is writing to probably the pastor of the church here in Thyatira. As with all the formulas of the, these letters, they include a description of Jesus himself relating to the issue that was going on in this church. Jesus describes himself to the church in Thyatira in three specific ways here. First and foremost, he, de he declares himself the Son of God, the Son of God. He is telling this church that I am God the Son. The Son of God is not to be inferred or to, to be thought of as Jesus somehow being manifest like a Greek God. He's not a demigod or anything like that. He is fully God. And he, was, he came in man, in, in human likeness, to become like us so that he could die and rise again from the dead for us. But he was fully God the whole time. Uh, it is referred to by John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that the title Son of God is used. And Jesus makes a very clear declaration here. Don't forget, I'm God. I am God in the flesh. I am God incarnate. He wants this church to be reminded that not only is he the Savior of the world, that he is the Lord of your life, but he is the God who came down. He wants them to understand this. John 1 1 says, In the beginning the word was with the word was God, and the word or in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son of the, uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This church in Thyatira had drifted away from worshiping Jesus Christ as God the Son. Jesus wanted to bring that back. And, and we have those in our culture today that are doing the same, that are, that are bringing Jesus down a notch into human only. Jesus is God first. Don't forget that. He is God first. Interesting enough, this church was being challenged not to worship the Son of God, but the Son God. His name is Apollo in this culture. He was also known, interesting enough, as the Son of Zeus. So this, this culture was trading the Son of God for the son of, son of Zeus, and thus Jesus says, let me declare to you who the real God is here. It's me. I am the Son of God. He goes on, secondly, to declare himself as the judge over all, we see this as the depiction where he says, I am the one who has eyes like a flame. Jesus wants this church to understand. He wants us to know today that there, he is not blind from anything going on in our lives. He sees everything. We are bare and naked before him. His penetrating eyes are not obstructed from any kind of thing that, that we might be doing in our lives. He wants them to know that he sees everything. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, you can't put up a facade, and you might be able to fool me, you might be able to fool the person next to you, but you cannot fool Jesus. You cannot fool Jesus. He has laser-like eyes that pierce any facade that you try and put up. And he does that because he loves you. He does that because he cares about us. He does that. He looks directly into our heart because he wants to deal with the root issue. He wants to deal with the sin in our life. And he will 
do whatever is necessary to reveal that sin so that we can deal with it. Jesus loves us, and therefore his eyes are piercing into the very, to our very souls. What an, what an incredible God that we have, is, is he not? That he would see you as you are, and yet he still loves you. It's amazing. That, that is speaking of the love that God has for us. Thirdly, we find that Jesus depicts himself as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. This, this represents uh, judgment. Anytime you come across the metal bronze in the Bible, it represents judgment. Interesting enough, this city in Thyatira was, they, were, uh, they had this incredible bronze guild there where they did all kinds of uh, metal work with bronze. But particularly, they used bronze to produce a weaponry for war. They would produce these shields that were bronze, and then they would, as they would polish them up, they would almost shine like gold. They would make armament out of bronze. Jesus, no doubt, appealing to that, speaking directly into the culture, is saying, you guys are preparing yourself for war with bronze. I'm telling you, look at my feet. War is coming. There is a war coming. There is judgment coming. I, again, will come and judge the world. Don't be mistaken by God's patience. He is coming one day, and he's coming with a sword. Jesus is coming to make war on the world. He's not only Savior, but he's also judge. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Romans chapter 4, 14, verse 10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Uh, John, describing Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, says that he, speaking of Jesus, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is a sobering depiction of Jesus Christ to a church there in Thyatira. Why? Because he wants them to understand the seriousness of allowing corruption and toleration of sin in the church. Listen, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, he is Savior and Lord, but do not ever forget that he is righteous and holy judge. And he will come one day and he will judge the world. Some might think, well, how unloving of God to do so? Listen, it's incredibly unloving that he's as patient as he is, that he hasn't done it yet. But he is coming one day and his judgment will begin in his church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, become, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, a sobering thought of where we sit. Yes, God, has, God, God will judge His church one day. Don't misunderstand. Your sins were dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're a real, true, genuine believer today, your sins have been dealt with. Jesus paid for them on the cross. He spilt his blood so that you could be covered, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could live a free life, by the way. Not so you can live the life however you want to live, but so you could live a free life and be a, a light to the world, that you can be someone who is propagating the gospel to those who are stuck. Jesus wants us to understand that in terms of eternal judgment, it's been settled on your account. But don't think for a moment that you won't experience chastisement in this world if you're living in sin. And we'll see that in a second here. Where the Lord will even, he'll do whatever's necessary. Sometimes he'll even take a believer out of the world because they're, they're not living in a way that would honor him. Because he cares about his name. And he cares about how we represent him. So if you're a believer, this judgment is not necessarily eternal, but perhaps it's this side of heaven in this world today. But there is an eternal judgment coming for those who are not believers. And it's to that that Peter would reflect in 1 Peter 4, 7. And he's saying, if judgment begins with us and, and we've been covered with the blood of Christ, think about those who haven't and the wrath of God coming down on them. Think about that. Let that weight hit you. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, he's writing that to, to those whom, you know, he was writing that day saying, listen, think about the gospel, folks. Think about eternity and those people who will, um, you know, reject the gospel of God. 
May that propagate you and I. May that produce a, a desire in you and I, a passion in you and I to go out and share the gospel with those people. We're not responsible for, their, for the way that they respond to it, but we are responsible to make sure that they hear it. That's our responsibility. Jesus wants this church to know that he is holy king and righteous judge and that he's serious about sin. He goes on here to examine this church. And interesting enough, as, he, as he's done, we've seen in the past in letters that there is a commendation for the true believers in Thyatira. Jesus says this to them in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus points out immediately about the, this true, the true believers in this church that there are works that they are doing, and he's pleased with those works. And in fact, those works are becoming increasingly more as this church goes on. He's saying, hey, you guys have works. You're a working church, and you're a growing church. You're, you're, you're growing in your works. Let me just say this, that real believers ought to have good works in their life. They ought to have good, uh, good works in their lives. If we don't have good works, we're off mission. We're off mission. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Listen, created in Christ Jesus. That means you were born again into Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. You don't, you're not saved by good works, but you're created, you're born again into Jesus Christ through his blood for good works so that you can do good works. Listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul told Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verse 14, he said, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Here's what we need to know. If we're living in the past on our past good works, if we're, li- if we're, if we're glorying what God's done in our life last week, last month, last year, perhaps we're off mission. Perhaps we're not growing in good works. Perhaps we are... As Paul said to Titus, we become unfruitful. Are we working for the Lord? Are we, are, we, are we on mission today? Are we producing fruit? He wants you to be a fruit bearer. He doesn't want you to be barren in fruit. He wants you to bear fruit. And the way that we do that is we surrender to the Lord. He's created some good works for you to walk in. And he will create the opportunity for you to do it. And as I said last week, the crazy thing is you get the credit for it. He created you to, the, the good work to walk in. He gave you the power to do it, and then he'll reward you in heaven for it one day. How amazing is that? I'm thankful for the Lord that he has created good works for me to walk in. I probably wouldn't find them if he didn't do that. So I'm thankful for that. But we need to be on task, church. He has good works for you to walk in. We need to be um, stewards of those things. Jesus commends this church for their works and there are four characteristics that he points out regarding to this church. First and foremost, that they are a loving church. Now, shouldn't every church that exists in Jesus' name be a loving church? Shouldn't we be a loving church towards one another, towards, you know, any who, who would come in, and also towards those who are stuck outside? We should be a loving church because we serve a loving God. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that God not only is a loving God, but he is love. Like that's the definition of who God is. He is love. Therefore, his followers should be loving. We should allow the love of Christ to be flow right through us into all that we see. Every person that we come in contact with, we should allow that love. And it seems like this church was doing that. For some of those who are really walking with the Lord, that love was flowing through. How do we get more love in our lives? We've got to try harder and memorize more scripture. We have to go to church more and get involved in more Bible studies, right? No, that's not right. What we need to do is surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow the fruit of the Holy Spirit to come out in our life, which is love. So the more we surrender to the Holy Spirit, the more love will manifest itself and all of these other things, by the way. It's a surrender issue. So, so the Lord tells us that this church was a loving church. Secondly, they were a church that was walking by faith. This church in this culture, no doubt, was facing difficult situations as, it, as relating to their, their livelihood. Like if they didn't 
you know, fall into these guilds and worship through these guilds and all, they would end, end up, you know, being blacklisted and they couldn't work. They had to walk by faith and not by sight. It's been a very difficult situation, but this church was walking. But the particular people in this church, the faithful believers in this church, were walking by faith. Thirdly, Jesus says that they were a, a, a believers that were in service. In service. That word service, you could circle, you could you make a note off to the side in your Bible, you could write the word deacon. It means the same. It translates into our, our word deacon, which literally means servant, minister. That's what that word means. This church was, was, uh, had believers in it that were faithful to serve. They were serving one another in love, walking by faith, being faithful to the call that God had put on their lives to be servants to one another. Not only that, but they were also patiently enduring. How long, O oh Lord... Will you allow these things to continue to go on and come against your church? Some of us are crying that today in our culture. I can't imagine what it was like in Thyatira where I couldn't make a living if I didn't succumb to the culture and the way that things were done there. Listen, God commends these these people, these believers in this church for being patient in endurance. This is an attribute of God, folks. He is patient in his endurance towards you and I. He is incredibly patient. He waited 24 years for me to come to Christ. How long did he wait for you? And oftentimes, we're so impatient with God's timing in our lives. I need you to do it now. Listen, here's what we know. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And sometimes, he, you know, it's going to seem like he's not doing anything but be patient. Endure in those times and watch and see what the Lord does. Listen, we are called to be patient as our Lord is patient, to endure to the end. This church was doing that. On the surface, it seemed like it was a great church. On the surface, it seemed like lots of things were going well for this church. And yet, Jesus says, I have something against you. Draw your attention to verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Contrary to popular belief, a healthy church isn't just one that appears like it on the outside. Jesus would say you need to peek into the inside of a church to see if it's healthy. You can't just look on the outside. What are the core beliefs of the church? What are they teaching? What is the doctrine? You know, what do they stand for? And how do they stand, particularly in our culture today, in this culture in Thyatira, how do they stand firm in things that matter? Listen, the church can go too far in some of these things and, be, and begin to be known for what we are against. But there comes a time and a clear line that is drawn when, you know, We don't want to offend just to offend for the sake of offending, but there comes a time when the church has to take a stand against certain issues, i.e. abortion. We need to take a stand against babies being killed, right? Um, And how we take a stand is we just don't, we don't accept that because it's a cultural practice. It's not something that we're okay with and we're just, well, yeah, um, if you don't, you know, it's your choice kind of a thing. No, we say no, listen. Listen, that's a human life. The Bible says don't murder, and that's murder. Don't murder. You know, there are things like that that we need to stand firm for. You don't know what those things are until you peek inside. Most people will keep an arm's length distance, and they have an appearance of godliness, but really until you pierce that facade, you don't really know what's going on. Jesus looks right through the facade into the core of what was going on in this church, and he's appalled by what's happening here. He's incredibly appalled here. There was a strong womanly influence in this church that was, uh, you know, had been, she had been given a position of teaching, number one, and number two, she had been uh, allowed to teach False doctrine. 
So the church was erring in two specific ways. Number one, they were allowing her, this woman, to, to, to teach from the pulpit, which I'll talk about in a second, is unbiblical. Secondly, uh, they, they were allowing her to teach the, the same doctrines that Jezebel herself swayed her husband Ahab in the Old Testament to do to the children of Israel. He happened to be the worst king ever in the history of the children of Israel, by the way. He was the most wicked king ever. He didn't need any help, but he had help. And his wife was, had swayed him. The Bible says that, that she influenced his decisions. She influenced her decisions. She was a Sidonian who Ahab should not have married in the first place. He, contrary to the word of God, like people do today and marry unbelievers, he married outside of the fold of Israel, which was sinful. He got himself married to this woman named Jezebel, and she had an incredibly wicked influence upon him, satanic influence upon Ahab to bring idol worship into Israel, which obviously would lead to them being carried away into captivity. Ahab would erect uh, an altar to Baal. He would erect Asherah poles. And they would begin to worship uh, the Sidonian gods there. And, it, and the Lord would become angry with them because he does not put up with idolatry. He doesn't, he's, he's a jealous God. He wants us to worship him and him alone. Jezebel had been instrumental, uh, an instrument of Satan used to sway the people of God. Now, historically, follow me on this. This Jezebelian spirit actually manifests itself in church history about the 600 to 1500 uh, uh, year AD uh, years. And it was during the time of the Dark Ages and the rise of the Catholic Church. And this Jezebelian idolatrous spirit had swept its way into the culture. As we remember last week, Church of Pergamum historically represented the, 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 the time in which Constantine married the church to the state. Fast forward a couple hundred more years, now the church has become totally corrupt and in fact is, is introducing idolatry to the people. They're saying, we have a great idea. Let's venerate uh, Mary. Let's worship her as, you know, as almost God. Let's just, let's deify her and let's just begin to worship her. And in fact, let's take saints and let's begin to worship them. It was the same spirit that Thyatira was dealing with. The Catholic Church had, had induced or introduced this form of idolatry that they would call worship. I promise you if Mary was alive today, she would stand firmly against anybody praying to her, worshiping her, uh, you know, bowing the knee to her, as would any saint that has ever lived in the history of the world would also do the same. Don't worship me. In fact, the angelic beings say, don't worship me. And yet, the Catholic Church had instituted a time during what is called the Dark Ages when the Word of God was hidden from people. And in fact, it was, it was illegal for the, a translation to be given to a, to a layman so that they could read the word of God on their own. They were hiding the word. They were saying, no, we have to give the interpretation. That's what Jehovah Witnesses do. The Catholic Church did that. You look back in her church history, it's a terrible situation. It was a Jezebelian spirit, and it's still alive today. We still see that today. Again, the first error is is basically a rebellion against the headship that God had instituted in the home and also in the church. It, it's this male head, leadership role that God had put in, uh, instituted himself, and, you know, this church had, had rejected it and said, no, no, we're going to let women teach in the pulpit. Listen, women are probably generally more godly than men, no doubt. And in fact, interesting enough, you know, demographically, more women come to church than guys. But listen, women have a role in church. And it's not to be the head of the church. That, you know, and it's not something that we, uh, we get to choose. It's something that God chose. 
The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. N- not in the sense of she has no place in the church. That's not what he was saying. But he was saying in terms of leadership in the church, the way that it would work is the same pattern as leadership in the home. There, you, it, it's a man that's called to be the high priest, or, or to be the priest of the home. Jesus is the high priest, but it's the man who's called to be the spiritual leader of the home. The man is called to be the spiritual leader of the church. I don't, want, I don't understand how we're confused about that. You know, where we, where we today have allowed this Jezebelian spirit to come in and, and sway the congregations, and now we have people that don't read their Bible or that want to say that that's not what that says, but that's a, clearly what it says. And we, we hold fast to male leadership role here, not legalistically. Women have an incredible role in the church. It's just not a pulpit role dealing with the general congregation of the church. And that's something that the Lord instituted. And when we reject that, we're rejecting him. We're rejecting his authority just like the culture is as it relates to marriage. It's the same thing. We're saying, God, we know better. We're going to do it our way. How can God honor something when we're rejecting his word? When we reject what he says. And you might think like, oh, that's no big deal. Listen, it's a full rebellion against his word. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. If God didn't, if it wasn't a big deal, God wouldn't have made it a big deal. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have issued it that way. So that's number one. Number two is that, again, the, the message that this lady was instituting was a message of tolerance. She was saying, you know, you have to make a living, so... I mean, join the guilds. Just go, just go through the motions. I mean, you don't have to really mean it. You can just go through the motions. You know, you can go to the feast and you can do all those kinds of things. And In fact, you could enjoy yourself. And in fact, the, what she was teaching what was called dualism. And dualism is this idea that, you know, that we are both spirit and physical, you know, body and, body and soul, and that the soul is inherently good, but the body is inherently evil. And God doesn't care about the body, but he cares about the soul. So whatever you do in the body doesn't really matter because he cares about the soul. And she was teaching from the pulpit, it's cool to just integrate with the culture and just do whatever you want to do. And, and you know, after all, it's, it, is, it is your livelihood, you know. And this church had given themselves over to her and allowed her to step in and sway the people into this idolatrous, you know, uh, manifestation of worship that God abhors. Historically through the Bible, you can read account after account after account of what happens to people that allow idolatry into their lives. And by the way, that has not changed. God's not cool with idolatry. He's not okay with it. And he will deal with it. What's amazing about God is how incredibly patient he is with with the sin of man, with the sin of people, with the sin of even church and believers, how he is so patient and incredibly uh, loving towards us that he would, as he does here, give us time to repent. He gives two specific commands as we move forward into these verses here, one for the unfaithful and one for the faithful. To the unfaithful, in verse 21, he, he says this, I, ge- I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed Listen, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And listen to this. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. If you read back in the Old Testament, and you see the, the, the words that God spoke about idolatry to the children of Israel or relating to sin in general, you can see the seriousness of it. That was the point. The entire point was to see the physical manifestation of sin and to see judgment come so that people would turn away from it. It was the entire point of the Old Testament. Man trying to reach up to God. Here, we can do it ourselves. Let me show you what sin looks like. And in fact, here's the ramification of sin. If you were caught in adultery, they would just stone you to death. I mean, it was capital punishment, one sin after another. 
<laughs> you, you could go to the temple and, and offer sacrifice every time you sinned. Every time you sinned, you, I mean, you and I would just set up a camp there, wouldn't we? We'd just say, hey, let's just set up a camp here. We'll just sacrifice on a daily basis. The point is that we can't do it on our own. But God wants us to see the severity of it. And in fact, when you would go into the temple and you would sacrifice for your sin, it would be you that would slit the throat. It would be you that would produce the death because he wants you to understand. And you would watch the blood spill out of the lamb. It was a picture of how God detests sin and the ramifications of sin. Sin's fruit is death, clearly. And he wanted them to understand that. And that might be vivid for us today, and we definitely would have a problem with Peter over that. But listen, here's the reality is that God hasn't changed regarding that. Like, he is that serious about sin. And he wanted, uh, you know, he wanted, if, you know, in this culture, as it would happen to us, we, we can easily just become tolerant of certain sins in our life. Well, I'm not perfect, you know. And we could just become intolerant to it. And, again, we can't do it on our own, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I am saying, Jesus Christ paid the price for you so you could be free. The Bible says if the Son set you free, you're free indeed, Right? We have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to live a free life. When we fail, Christ makes up the difference. But that is not to say that we have the right to just live in sin. He wants us to be a repentive people. He wants us to be a people that's continually going to the blood of Christ and asking for forgiveness and turning away from our sin and turning to the Lord. He wants us to be a growing people. He wants us to grow out of those things. He wants us to mature in Him. And the way that we mature is we get the word of God in us. That's how we combat sin in our life. David said, I I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's serious about it. But what's amazing is he's incredibly patient with it. And he says, even with Jezebel, who has this spirit of rejecting God, rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting, you know, this, this invitation of repentance over and over and over again, she will not repent. She won't do it. And so the Lord says, listen, I I will not put up with it either. I will not tolerate this in my church. And so he tells her, listen, these these are the ramifications. I will throw her on her sickbed. He will throw her on her sickbed. Let me just say something else about repentance real quick. That that is God's heart for you. He doesn't want to judge people. He doesn't want to bring down condemnation on people, but he will. But he doesn't want to. And in fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10 describes for us very clearly the heart of God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some account slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any would perish, but all should reach repentance. Listen, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done On it will be exposed. God is a patient God, and he's a loving God, and he's a forgiving God. But only to those who are willing to repent. You have to be willing to repent. Unwillingness to repent repent will bring the hammer down. It will bring the wrath of God down on those who don't believe, and it will bring chastisement down upon true believers. He will not force you to repent. Her refusal to repent is met with a judgment of sickness. Jesus says, I'm going to throw you onto a sick bed. It's interesting that he uses that terminology because that's the same bed she's defiling herself on. Sexual immorality. She's defiling herself on a bed and he's going to th- I'm going to throw you on a different kind of bed, a sick bed, that will produce death if you will not repent. He will do that even to believers. Let me give you a couple of New Testament uh, examples. Ananias and Sapphira. What was their sin? What did they do? They lied. They lied. And God struck them dead. And right at the feet of the disciples. You, you haven't lied to us. You lied to God. Boom, dead. They lied about selling their home and giving all the proceeds to the church. Oh, yeah, here's all of it. You and I might go, well, dude, that's kind of harsh, man. I mean, I've done way worse things than that. And I'm still breathing. Why would he do that? Because he's serious about sin. 
And he's serious about the establishment of his church and holiness and righteousness. And that's why he did that. I can't tolerate that. I need you to understand, he says, even in the New Testament under the New Covenant, that I'm serious about it. And so they, they drop dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when they were the church of Corinth was instituting the, the Lord's Supper and they were coming together and they were sharing. And Paul said, listen, you guys are doing this irreverently. You're doing it irreverently. You're coming in and you're getting drunk on the wine. You're, you're eating all the food. You know, it's, it's not meant to be a, a, it was a feast, but it wasn't meant to be like that. And so it was a sinful situation rather than a celebration of Jesus Christ and what he'd done for us. And Paul said, some of you are on your sickbed because of that. Because you're, and some of you have even fallen asleep, he said. Some of you have died because of that. Because God's serious about it. Now, I don't, I'm not the one that gets to choose which one of those things that he will, will, will bring you to. But understand, that is the case. He's, he's very serious about these things. This side of heaven. Eternally, your, your, the weight of sin has been paid for. But practically, on this side of heaven, God's working it out. And he will bring uh, you know, these kinds of things into our life to encourage us to do the right thing. Because he set us free so that we could do these things. God is not going to put up with willful disobedience. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing to tolerate sin in your life. And God's calling us to repentance today. And he will surely, as, ri as the rising and the setting of the sun, bring great tribulation upon those who, it, which may include death, to those who will not repent. As surely as the day is long, he will do that, folks. Hey, there, I don't even know these sayings, but hey, whatever. It's not meant to scare you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to be real. And that's the reality, folks, is that God is real with us. And he wants us to know these things. We need to repent. And, you know, you might say, well, where's the grace, man? Where, I thought we were in the grace. That is the grace. That is the grace to repent, the, the ability to repent. That is the grace. You get what you don't deserve. We deserve judgment, condemnation, but he gives us the opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. That is the grace. That's what he wants to do in our lives. He tells us that those who are being unfaithful to repent, now he turns to those who are being faithful in the church. Perhaps this is many of you here today. Here's what he says. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The deeds of Jezebel were the result of satanic influence. And yet there were some who had not fallen for it. Maybe you've grown in your relationship with the Lord and you can start to begin to see the satanic influences, the, the, the attacks, the spiritual attacks on your life. And you can call them out now, but maybe you weren't able to do that before. You can start to see, you know, the, the dangling carrot. You can see why you struggle. And you can point out the moment in which you were tempted and you, you, you gave way to it. That's because you're maturing in the Lord. And the Lord's helping you understand and identify these things. This church was growing there were many believers in this church that were able to identify this is a satanic attack, this is, this is a temptation for sin, I, I don't want to get into this, uh, you know, and we're no doubt probably saying, hey, what, to the church leadership, like, what are you guys doing allowing her to do this? Listen, in this culture, there was one church. Not like you could run over to, you know, another church like our culture, I think there's 113 churches in Colombia. You don't like what's going on here, you just go to the other one. That wasn't the case in Thyatira. And, and I don't think that should be the case. If something's unbiblical, we have a responsibility as Christians to stand up and say, hey, listen, this isn't representing the Lord correctly. I had a conversation yesterday. We were, I was in a meeting with somebody, and I said something. And uh, I didn't intend for it to be gossip, but it was. And this guy goes, ho, 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 ho. That's gossip, man. And I was like, you know what, you're right. That is gossip. I'm sorry, forgive me. I ask the Lord to forgive me for that. We, we can't just let things go, man. And again, we don't sniff out sin and all of that, but when God reveals it, we, we want to deal with it. 
right? We want to deal with these things because he, he wants us to deal with them. He tells this church here and these people that are being faithful, listen, it's satanic. It's a result of satanic. It's the deep things of Satan. And you have, you have not learned them. And if you've never learned them, don't learn them. It's not something you want to learn about. And you learn it by practical example, like you fall into it, and that's how you learn. Oh, okay, that, that was the deep things of Satan. I don't want to fall into these things. Jesus is saying that there are some in this church that haven't. They haven't learned from these things. They haven't fallen into these traps. They're pure. They're operating under the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're doing all the right things. And Jesus says, to you, I say this. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Make sure you fast three times a week because you've got to make sure you stand against it. No, no, he, he just said, I don't put any other burden on you. Well, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Which, Listen, if you're doing good, don't, don't mess it up. Don't add things to it. You're going to get burdened, and then you're going to be like, man, you're going to get burned out. Jesus says, I'm not laying any more burden on you. And in fact, listen, I only say this to you. Hold fast. Hold fast. It means to take seas up. It means to hold on to with like everything that you've got. Just grab on a hold of it, and you just hold fast. They're called to hold fast. What are they called to hold fast to? Hold fast to what you have until I come. What do they have? What exactly do they have? They have the truth. That's what they have. They're called to hold fast to the truth, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to stand firm in their faith with the truth. They need to continue on in the truth and not allow the, the, the deceptions of the enemy to come in, to sway you like you're seeing in our culture today. And I bring this up because this is a significant issue, I believe. This is significant spiritual attack upon what I would call the church at large. And, you know, it, it's not a judgmental thing, but when you're in ministry and you've been given a platform to stand for the Lord and you've been given the opportunity to speak on His behalf, the only reason you're there is because He gave you the opportunity. And then you cower to the culture and you do not stand for what is truth, but you cower to the culture and say, well, do we really know? Do we really know if this is truth or not? Do we really know if this is right or wrong? I just say, you know, read your Bible, and then you figure it out for yourself, and then let me know, because I'm just learning. Wait a second. You're a minister. You've been given a platform by the Lord to stand in, in a significant manner, and you're cowering to the culture and saying, you don't know what the Bible says, but you're a minister. What are you doing? Listen, that saddens me greatly, and it angers me greatly. And the reason for that is because God has given a platform for his name to be elevated. And sometimes we get off track and we start to think it's about us. And it's about our fans and it's about our name and it's about us. And, and you know, it's never about us. It's never about us. And Lord, forgive me if I ever make it about me. It's not about us. It's about him. And it's about what he wants to do. And it's about elevating him. And listen, if I elevate him, but all of a sudden the world turns its back on me, oh, well. Oh, well. It's okay. I'm all right with that. But listen, we are increasingly going to face these situations. And maybe not on, the, you know, on, the, on a big front like, like happening, but you personally will also start to face these issues. And you probably have in certain ways. You have people that will target you specifically and ask you questions about what you believe because they know you're a believer. They know you're a Christian, and they're going to ask you about cultural issues. Well, what do you think about, you know, abortion? It's pretty clear to me the Bible says don't murder. I don't know. Well, I don't like you anymore. Well, you asked me what you asked me, and I told you the truth in love because I care about you, right? Or whatever the cultural issue is. Uh, listen, we have a responsibility, church, to have a biblical answer for, for um, cultural issues. <laughs> like we have a responsibility to make sure that we have a biblical answer for these things. That we ought to study the Bible and show ourselves the proof. We ought to be people that are, that are diving into the Word, not so, that we can, uh, not so we can argue with people about cultural issues. Because I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, if God allows the, the opportunity to be brought up, then deal with it. 
But we're not going to stand outside with picket signs and stuff like that and stand against those things. Maybe God, and listen, God has risen up certain people in his church to take the mantle and to deal with things on a political level and all that kind of stuff. That's not my calling. My calling is to pastor a church and do this. So that's what I'm doing. But if I'm asked a, bi- a, a, a cultural question about a biblical, I will have a biblical answer. And you should too. Because how do, how do people know what sin is unless they're told what it is? How do they know? You know, Paul says, how, how, do they, how can they hear unless someone's sent to them? Like maybe you're the one that was been sent to that person so that you could talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can say, listen, yes, this is the reality of truth and I'm holding fast to the truth. I can't release the truth, but I'm going to give you the truth, but I'm also going to give you the remedy to that. And here's the deal is if you're stuck in that, Jesus came to save you from that. He came to die for you and to shed his blood for you. We have a responsibility to hold fast, and that's what he is telling this church not to lose sight of. You hold fast to the truth. What he is recognizing in this moment is, yes, it will get harder. Yes, it will get harder. Why do you think he told them, only do this, just hold fast, because it's going to get harder. And it's going to get harder for you. It's going to get harder for me. As culture continues to go the direct opposite way of the Bible, it will get harder for those who want to stand firm in their faith. But Jesus has this one encouragement for you, this one command for you and I, and he says this, you hold fast. You hold fast to the truth. Listen, until I come. Are those not like the the greatest three words in the Bible, until I come? Like he's coming. He told us when he left, he said, listen, I'm going to go away. He told his disciples that. But don't worry. I'll come back. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then when it's done and it's time, I'm going to come get you. I will come for you. And he will come one day. And that is so encouraging. And that's he's encouraging this church. Listen, yes, it's going to be difficult. And, and the culture is going to continue to rise against you. But you hold fast to it. And you keep your eyes on this fact that I am coming back one day. And when Jesus comes back, he'll set it all straight. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we, we won't have to worry about those things. That's not something we can do. It's only something he can do. Right? We, we have one simple thing to do as believers. And that is, as he said here, hold fast to the truth. Stand for the truth. That's all, we, that's all we're called to do. He will do the rest. But we do have a responsibility to do that. He goes on and he says, listen, here's the reward for the person who does that. The one who conquers and to the one who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and will give him the morning star. The one who conquers is, again, it's a reference to the one who overcomes through Jesus Christ. The one who overcomes through Jesus Christ. First John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's by faith that you become an overcomer, that you become a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. To those who are genuine and true believers, who, um, who, who are, you know, continuing on in the faith, Uh, enduring to the end, waiting for his coming, all of these things, Jesus says, I'm going to reward you with two things. You will come and rule and reign with me in the millennial kingdom. Many people ask the question, what are we going to be doing for a thousand years? Like, will we be in heaven and Jesus will be here on earth? No, you'll be with Jesus. You'll be ruling and reigning. Like, he has a job for you to do on earth. You will come with him, you know, you know, as we believe from an eschatological standpoint that the rapture of the church happens first, then the tribulation period, then the second coming of Christ, and then the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And so the church will be gone, and Jesus will bring the church back at the second coming, and we will rule and reign with him. He's got a responsibility. And, and ultimately, let me just say this, probably directly related to your responsibilities in the millennial reign is directly related to your faithfulness today and what you're doing for him and how you're living out your life today. That is the reward. That's the reward. And he says, to those who are faithful with little, I will give much. So who knows? You could have your dream job, you know, in Hawaii, and you'd be able to rule and reign with Christ there. Who knows what it will be? But, but you'll be able to rule and reign with him for a thousand years if you're, in, if you're a conqueror in Christ, if you are in right relationship with him. 
Not only that, but he also says, I will give, them the, I will give him the morning star. The morning star is, number one, it's a title for Jesus in the Bible. We see that in the book of Psalms. It's, it's a title, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, says that Jesus is the morning star. There are those who believe what he's saying he will be giving is himself. I think that, that that could be, but there was also references to the morning star in, the, in passages such as Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, that promise that believers will shine as bright as Jesus in all of his glory, as a morning star. Like he will give you the, the ability to shine as bright as, as a morning star. Now, I'll take either one of those. It doesn't really matter to me. You can choose one if you'd like. Or you can just say, eh, we'll figure it out when we get there, right? He, he ends with the exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a sobering, sobering word to a tolerant church. It has to be sober. It has to be sobering because it's a tolerant issue. Because the church is sleeping. Because the church has allowed things to come in and Jesus has to wake them up. So it has to be a very strong, emphatic message of Jesus saying, I can't stand that. I can't let that happen. Because he knows what the next step is. You become dead in your heart. Then you become religious and it makes Jesus sick. That, that's the point in which he's, 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 he's trying to wake people up here so that doesn't happen to them. And that's what he wants you to know today. Listen, if you're being faithful and you're, you're holding fast today, continue on. Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything more than what you're doing. If you're being faithful, if, if opportunities arise and you're standing for the truth and, you're, and you know, you, you, these cultural issues that are going on in our world today and you're saying, hey, you know, this is what the Bible says and, you know, I, I, I love people, but I don't condone the situation, the, the sinfulness of people. And, you know, God loves us, and that's why he wants us to tell you because he wants you to know so that you can do something about it. If you're doing those things, you just continue doing that. You just, the Lord is proud of you. You just keep going. You keep moving forward. You keep, you know, pressing on towards the prize. If you're, if you're not, if, you have, if you're entangled, if you're off mission, if you're entangled in some, some act of sin, entangled in sexual morality of some way or, you know, s some kind of false teaching. You know, you, you, you find what you want to, to, to follow and then you follow it. It doesn't matter where it comes from. You're not following the Lord. You're following you. You are the king of your heart. The Lord would say to you this morning, repent. Listen, he cares about you. He loves you. He wants you to turn. He wants you to turn towards him. If you're an unbeliever, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Listen, today is the day. You don't want to wait. You don't, there's a coming a day when Jesus will pop, from, pop in from the clouds and he will take his church. And that will usher in what's called the tribulation period. He said to those people who are unrepentant that they will experience great tribulation. That could mean, uh, you know, incredible pressure in their life pre uh, the tribulation period. It could mean the tribulation period. They may not, may not have ever been believers in the first place. God doesn't, the, the, the point of the tribulation period is wrath, folks. God does not want to uh, pour out his wrath upon you, but he will. It's coming. And if you're an unbeliever today and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ and you're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, then, then you can look back to the Old Testament example of the Passover when the angel of death swept through and judgment came down on every one of the firstborn uh, males in, that, in the households and they died if they didn't have blood covering the, the, their door. The same holds true for a believer. If you are not covered by the blood, you will experience death, and not just physical death, but spiritual death. And God doesn't want you that. Well, he doesn't want that for you. He wants to give you life. That's why Jesus came, and life abundantly. The encouragement for us today as a church is, is eschatological. Jesus says this, remember I'm coming. Remember I'm coming. You, we can say with, with, with gladness of heart today, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We can't wait to see you, Lord. We long for your coming. And uh, so, if you, it, you know, you fit in one of those categories today. 
You decide. You let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart, and then you respond to it. But don't turn a deaf ear. Jesus said he's encouraging you. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your, your continued, Lord, efforts to reveal yourself to us, Lord, in all ways. Not only as Savior and Lord, but also as King and Judge. And we're so thankful this morning for that. Lord, we ask you that as we close in this service right now, that you would help every person to respond in the manner that you would see fit, how your Holy Spirit would lead. For those that are unbelievers, Lord, that they would come to that place of repenting, turning away from their sin, declaring that they are sinners, that they need a Savior who is Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again for them personally. And they are placing their faith in him. And it's not just a simple prayer of, you know, worldly hopefulness, but it is a declaration of a surrender to the heart, saying, Jesus, you are now the captain of my ship. I am turning my whole life over to you. You have your way with me. So we pray for those, Lord, that might hear this message here this morning or on our podcast or on the radio or whatnot, Lord, that you would speak even to them now. And for the rest of us here today, Lord, um, those who are following hard, Lord, continue to give us the encouragement to do so. Even if things get harder, God, may your grace become increasingly greater in our lives and may our love for you increase as well. And Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.